we're in this series called uh, The Keys or the Characteristics of a, of a Loving Church. And we started this series last week and we started looking at the keys to a, a loving church, the keys to a growing church. There in Romans chapter 12 is what we've been walking through. So if you have your Bibles, your electronic devices, you can either turn on your Bibles or turn in your Bibles uh, to Romans chapter 12. We only made it through a couple of verses and so we're going to finish up this morning looking at the characteristics of a loving church. And Paul was writing to, the Rome, to, the, to those, the church there at Rome, and he was writing to them and he was explaining to them some of the attributes of a loving church, what it means to be a contributing member, what it means to be a participator, and all of those other things to the local church. And so here's what Paul writes to that church, and, and we made it all the way up to verse 12, and so we're going to finish it out this morning. But here's what he said. He said, let love be genuine. So that was one of our first B's. We came up with the killer B's. Remember that? If you were with us, you know this. Uh, we, the first one was just be genuine. So he says, be genuine, be real, be transparent. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be ser- fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice uh, in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so Jesus phrased it this way. fact is, Jesus made it really succinct, and he made it really quick. And he said this in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what Jesus was saying is the mark of a Christian is this. is not the denominational tag that we hang on our name or, or not where we go to church or not what we do Saturday night with church or Sunday or whatever. But the mark of a local church, the mark of a believer is this, is that you love one another and you care for one another deeply. And so Paul begins to flesh that out to the Romans. And Paul begins writing into the church there in Rome and says that if you love one another, that if you are my followers, if you are my disciples, then there's some attributes that are going to be true in your life. There's some action things that you're going to do. And so, so the, the next B as we pick this, this up in verse 12 is this, is that you're going to be patient. In other words, he speaks right into their life. He speaks right into where they are. And we looked at last week, we looked at the statement, rejoice in hope. In other words, we looked at last week, be hopeful. But the rest of that verse was this. There's some more B's in this verse, and it says, be patient in tribulation. Now, that seems strange to us, right? I mean, none of us likes to be patient in suffering, if you're like me. Nobody likes to be patient in tribulation. Nobody likes to be patient in difficult times. But Paul says, oh, you need to be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Paul in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, said it like this. He said, not only that, but here he goes again. We rejoice in our sufferings. That just sounds weird to us, right? 
I don't know anybody that says, you know what, I kind of rejoice in my sufferings. I, I rejoice in tribulation. And so, but Paul goes deeper and he begins saying why. He says, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been giving to us. And so Paul is saying the reason that we can be confident is that, is that we understand that the, the plan of God or the power of God is bigger than our problems. The power of God in your life and the power of God in my life is bigger and greater than, than our problems. And when we go through tribulations, when we go through sufferings, there are some things that God teaches us. I mean, in suffering and tribulation, that's when we learn to press into Him, right? I mean, there are things in my life that God has taught me, whether it's in suffering and, tri- and, and tribulation, that He could never t- teach me in the celebrations of life. There's something about difficulty, there's something about suffering, there's something about tribulation that when you go through that, when you go through that difficulty, that you lean on Him and you learn that, you know what? I can even trust Him. I can even trust Him in the midst of my suffering. I can trust him in the, diff- in the midst of my difficult times. And then when you look at this, you realize that, that God's power is not only bigger than, than, than your problems, but you realize that God is using your tribulations. God is using your suffering to strengthen you and to develop some things in you. Paul said this. Paul says, and, in, and he, he goes on and says, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope. That word endurance in the Greek means this. It means the ability to remain under. Man, we live in a world where people cut and run at the first sign of tribulation, the first sign of difficulty. And what Paul is saying, and Paul is saying that when you go through difficulties, when you go through tribulation, and you understand that God is bigger than your problems and God is bigger than your pain, that you realize that you can remain under and he'll bless you. And he'll take care of you. And then Paul goes on and says, you know how you learn to be patient? He said, I'll tell you how. You be constant in prayer. That it comes through prayer. He says again, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. It's, in this world, I don't know if you're like me, in this world it's easy to get stressed. It's easy to get under pressure. And I know the, the signs in my life when I get stressed, when I get under pressure... I get really irritable. I mean, I get gripey. I get short. I get short with Karen. I get short with the girls. I get short with people I work with. But I never get short with my grandson. <laughs> I mean, that like never happens. I mean, you know, it, those of you that are grandparents, you know that. You get that, right? Uh, here a while back, we took the family to, uh, back to Texas for a funeral. And so I had Brittany and Amanda, my two daughters, and Gavin, grandson, and Karen went with us. Corey, Brittany's husband, wasn't able to go with his work schedule. And so we traveled 1,900 miles in five days in a car all together. And so, you know, I finally just looked at my grandson, Gavin, and says, you know, Gavin, you and I, we got like this common enemy, your parents. <laughs> right? Because they got rules and regulations and all this other stuff. And I want you to spoil them and all this other stuff. But when you're a grandparent, and so, but anyway, back to, the, back to this uh, kind of rabbit trail, uh, Paul is saying that when you go through difficulty, when you go through tribulation, what helps you to be patient is being constant in prayer. And when we're we're stressed, when we're carrying more than we're supposed to carry, it's easy for us to get gripey, to get grouchy, to get irritable, 
short with people that are around us. And that is a sign. That is a sign deep in our heart. And Paul's saying what keeps you on task is understanding, being constant in prayer, because here's the truth. Human love wears out. I mean, human love wears out. God's love doesn't wear out. But human love wears out. That's why marriages sometimes struggle. That's why marriages go through difficult seasons. That's why relationships go through difficult times. That's why things happen between people is because the Scripture teaches that, guess what? Human love wears out. But God's love never wears out. And that when you go through those difficult times, that you're constant in prayer. That so many times when people want to ditch life journaling, ditch reading Scripture, or ditch praying. And that's when we need to pray the most because guess what? Human love may wear out, but God's love never wears out. And if, you, if you're having difficulty with someone, if someone is creating stress in your life, you're having difficulty with someone, guess what? Start praying for them. Just start praying for them. I mean... I mean, it's, and, and it's an amazing thing. When you start praying for them, God begins to change not only them, but he changes your heart. In fact, is Paul is a living example of this. It's an interesting deal that he's writing about this principle because this was true in Paul's life. In, in Acts chapter 7, Paul wasn't a believer yet. He was, uh, he was, he was a, a legalist and a, and all, a Pharisee and all these other things. And so Paul was doing everything he could to just stop the Christian church. He was martyring Christians, killing Christians, getting letters, going into the homes, and all. He was doing everything he could to start the, the movement of the way, the, the the church. And so there was this incident that happened in Acts chapter seven when all of a sudden they're going to martyr the first deacon, or the first Christian, which was the first deacon Stephen in Acts chapter seven. And the scripture says that Paul was there that day, giving approval to murdering Stephen. Fact is, Paul was giving approval, and Paul was holding the coat of Stephen so they could kill him, so they could stone him. And he witnesses a Christian in the greatest form of suffering and tribulation. And all of a sudden, Stephen prays. He prays for his enemies. And Stephen prays his simple prayer. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He's praying for Paul. And months later, God answers that prayer. And Paul meets Christ and changes his life. In fact, as Paul writes, he writes a third of the New Testament. And now you have Paul writing about this principle. That be, be patient in tribulation. Be patient in suffering. Here's another P that, that, that Paul, or another B that Paul told them about. Is this, the, the B is this, be generous. In other words, Paul is going to talk in, he's going to press into this church there in Rome, and he's going to make them really, really uncomfortable. People get really uncomfortable when you talk about these two subjects that Paul presses in on. In fact, is he talks about these subjects whenever he wrote into the local church, whether it's church there in Thessalonica, whether it was church there in Galatian, whether it was, whether it was this church in Rome, whether it was the church in Corinthians. He always pressed into this, this principle of learning to be generous, uh, generous and he, he talks about two things that people, it's pretty personal to people. He talks about their time and he talks about their money. And so nobody, nobody, nobody wants anybody to tell them how to spend their money. They don't want God to tell them. They don't want a preacher to tell them. They don't want their husband to tell them. They don't want their wife to tell them. They don't want anybody to tell them how to spend their money. Oh, and they don't want anybody to tell them how to spend their time. 
I mean, those two times are, things are very personal to us because really and truly it makes up who we are. If you want to know your values, if you want to know your principles, then it's real easy to, to, to figure out. You take your, 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 your bank statement or your credit card statement and you take your, your calendar and where you spend your time and where you spend your money are your values. That's what, that is what your priorities are in life. And so, so Paul presses into that and watch this. He says this. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints. In other words, give. Give to the local church. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So all of a sudden, he presses in, makes everybody nervous. He begins to talk about their money. What do they do with their money? And he begins to talk about their time. In other words, he says, you need to be willing to contribute one of the signs to contribute to the needs of the saints. Now listen, we've been on this amazing journey together as a church family. I mean, in the middle of April, we, we identified the land and, and 50 acres that we're able to buy. It started out $375,000. Remember that whole story? And so in the business meeting that we had here, we decided that, you know what? We don't need to borrow any money to pay for the land. We can just pay cash. And so, so we, we, we started just a little campaign and, and, and said, you know, watch, pray, and ask God what to give, and just be obedient and give that. And so I, I, I'm going to just tell you, uh, so to date, you know how much has been given? $352,000. So $352,000 has been given. Uh, to, so, it, so you know what? We're going to pay cash for that land, and, and we're really close. We're $13,000 away. And so when I got that number, I got so excited about that number. And I says, God, this is amazing. I cannot believe you're doing this in our church. It's such a big goal for our church. And so I emailed our administrator because I don't know what anybody gives, and I don't ever want to know what anybody gives. The only way I know what someone gives is if you tell me, which rarely happens. And so, so um, I don't want to know. That's just information I don't want. But there was a piece that I wanted to celebrate. And so I emailed our administrator and I says, would you mind telling me what percentage of our church bought into this. What percentage of our church gave to the land? 30%. I was shocked. I thought we were in this together. I'm telling you, I, I'm like, wow. Can you imagine what would happen if we all believe this, if we were all in, can you believe what would happen? I mean, it's been an amazing story. So it started out $375,000, right? And this board of directors, bankers, whose bottom line is money, who do not attend here, they decided, you know what? We've asked too much for the land. And we want to be a part of what Fellowship the Rockies is doing in our community. We want to be a part of what God's doing. So we're going to drop it $10,000. In other words, they gave. They don't even go here. And they're willing to, gay, to give. We had a church in Dallas, Texas, a closely relating church that have followed us and admired and been impressed what God has been doing in Pueblo, Colorado, in this body. And they just want to be a part of it. Do you realize they want to be the very first people they gave a significant amount of money? They just want to, two groups of people that don't even go here gave. I'm telling you. Imagine what would happen if it wasn't 30%, it wasn't 
But it was a hundred. This is what Paul's telling this church here. That a loving, growing church is when everybody's all in. And they understand the blessing that comes by giving. They understand that, that if you've been blessed by this ministry, if you've been blessed by what God is doing here, if you want to be a part of it, then, then just contribute to the needs of the saints. And so my, my encouragement to you, because what Paul said in, to the Corinthian church, he said, I urge you, I implore you, I beg you to give, because there's blessing in giving. And so my encouragement to you is not to the 30% who has given, because I trust you've asked God, and I trust you've been obedient, and all that other stuff, and thank you, thank you, thank you. But my encouragement is to the 70%. We need you. This church desperately needs you. And would you simply pray and ask God what you should give? Give. And let's just finish this up. It'll be so easy for us to celebrate. And so Paul says, just be generous. Be generous with your money and be generous with your time. And then he goes on and he says, seek to show hospitality. Now listen, that's different than entertaining. I, I honestly believe that hospitality is a spiritual gift. I mean, there's some people that you can go to their house and they entertain you. It's a great night. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of laughter. There's a lot of entertainment. But that's just kind of it, right? But there's some people that you can go to their house and you walk away, you feel ministered to, right? You feel that there's this presence, there's this difference in their house, and, and you, just feel, you just feel ministered to, you feel loved. Just, see, it's more than what's on the table. It's more than what the house looks like. It's, it's more than the place settings. It's more than the furniture. It's more than any of that. It's this issue of just being ministered to and loved, and, and it's the picture of life groups. It's a picture of opening up your, your home and being hospitable to people and inviting them into your home and encouraging them to where they just feel ministered to and they feel loved. And so the question is, why don't we show hospitality more? It's easy. We're self-centered. We're preoccupied. It's hard for us to get a, a lot of times to just to give of our time because it's so personal to us. We have story after story of how God has ministered to people in the life group environment where people minister each other, prayed for each other, encouraged each other. I know what our life group means to Karen and I and what it means every week and what it's been like through this summer to where we haven't been meeting and we're looking forward to, to when we, we meet again. We're talking about August the 14th and, and doing something to where that's, that's, the, that's the season premiere of Duck Dynasty. And so... Uh, <laughs> So we're talking about having a lot of barbecue and a lot of carbs, carbs for Christ and all of that other stuff and then watch Duck Dynasty and, and celebrate and enjoy one another together. And so, so, but Paul says, be generous. Another B is this, learn to be a blessing. Not learn to be a blessing. He goes on and he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. In other words, never speak evil. Never speak negative about a brother. So let me ask you a question. You don't have to ask, answer this out loud. A lot of people last night just, just inadvertently just started laughing and answered this out loud. And so do Christians ever persecute Christians? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we all, that, that's like no-brainer. Do Christians ever gossip about Christians? Do Christians ever persecute Christians? Do Christians ever slander Christians? Absolutely. Of course they do. Someone said this, that the Christian army is the only army that shoots their wounded. 
When someone fails, when someone stumbles, when someone has sin, when someone uh, can't keep up and all of this other stuff, that all of a sudden they kick them to the curb, they kick them out and all of that stuff, and that's when they need the church the most. And so absolutely there are Christians that persecute other Christians. And the point is this, is that it is true in everybody, there's this group of Christians that can get carnal or get caught up in the flesh to where there's like no more joy in their life and no more happiness in their life and they're miserable and they want to make you as miserable as they are. In fact, as the Phillips translation says this, bless those who try to make your life miserable. So what does the word bless mean if it says that we're supposed to be a blessing, if it says that we're supposed to bless those that persecute us, what does it mean to be what does it mean to bless? In the Greek, that word bless simply means this, speak well of. It means to be willing to speak well of them. In other words, it's the, it's the, it's the opposite of our natural inclination. It's the opposite of our flesh because our flesh wants to do this, right? When someone criticizes us, we want to criticize them back. When someone speaks evil of us, we want to speak evil of them. When someone hurts us, we want to hurt them in the same way that they've hurt us. And so what Paul is saying, do not get involved in this backbiting. There's a, in other words, it's this ministry of affirmation. And so we, it's so strange. We ask God all the time, God bless this person, God bless that person, and God does bless people, but guess what? You can bless people as well. This is what Paul is talking about, that when someone ridicules you, when someone hurts you, when someone maligns you, when someone doesn't speak well of you, learn, listen, learn to speak well of them. Uh, I don't know if you know the name, Dr. Tony Evans is a, is, is a, is a pastor in Dallas, Texas, and, and uh, he's just a phenomenal pastor and radio preacher and all that other stuff. And so he went to work a part-time at a seminary there in Dallas, Texas. And so he became a, pre- a professor of preaching along with Chuck Swindoll. Some of you have heard Chuck Swindoll's name, radio preacher. And so him and Chuck Swindoll, so, so Tony Evans is like the new guy. And so he, he comes on staff there. And so, so the way it works in seminary is this, and we all had to go through it. It's just humiliating. It's just horrible. That to pass your preaching class, you stand up and you preach to your peers, you preach to the, the students, which is just awkward because most of them are making fun of you, making faces, trying to make you goof up. And, so, and behind you are, the, are your professors. And they're sitting at a table behind you. So for your final exam, you preach. You preach to them. You turn around and you walk back. You already feel humiliated enough. You walk back and then you get their constructive criticism. And so, uh, so Tony Evans uh, was with Chuck Swindoll. It was his first time. He was a newbie. And so, uh, so Chuck says, hey, before the first guy comes up, just want you to know, we, before we give any criticism, we always give a compliment. And so Dr. Evans says, okay. So the first guy went up, and it was just bad. I mean, he shouldn't have done it. He just shouldn't have done it. It wasn't good at all. That wasn't his gift. And so Dr. Evans is looking at Chuck Swindoll, and the guy's finished, and so all of a sudden, Dr. Evans looks at Chuck Swindoll and says, you go first. <laughs> I mean, you go first. And so he said, okay. And so the guy came up, and Chuck looked at him for a real long time and said, young man, nice tie. <laughs> In other words, he found something that he could cut. You want to speak well of people? Find something in their life that you can speak well of them. Listen, anybody can criticize. Any fool can criticize. If you look long enough, you can find something to criticize about every one of us. 
because none of us are perfect. None of us always do the things that we're supposed to do and say the things that we're supposed to do. And it takes some creativity sometimes to find something in someone's life that you can compliment them and you can speak well of them, whether it's their work ethic or their family or their commitment or whether it's something. See, what Paul is saying is, don't be like the rest of the world. There's some things that as believers that they should know that we're believers by our love. And they were not always slandering people and maligning people and criticizing people and talking about people. But we learn to bless them in how we speak about them. Another B is this, be sympathetic. In verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who rejoice. In other words, what he's saying, learn to be sympathetic about each other's feelings. In other words, take into account each other's moods. In other words, be sensitive to one another. I mean, don't you like being around that type of person? Don't you like being around the type of person that's kind of sympathetic to everybody's moods, that understands it's able to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, that are aware of your moods, aware of your feelings? And listen, sometimes it's easier for people to weep with those who weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice. When that person gets the promotion that you've wanted, gets the house, gets the car, gets the vacation, gets the marriage, gets the situation, it is harder for some people in those situations to rejoice with those who rejoice. You know why? Because if you're not careful, envy sets in. But isn't it refreshing to be around a person that understands your moods and is sympathetic to your moods and can weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice? See, Jesus was like this. Jesus attended both funerals and, and weddings. The fact is, Jesus did miracles in weddings and in funerals. And he was sympathetic and he was aware to the needs and the, the, the moods of those that are around him. Here's another B. Learn to be accepting. And if we're going to be a loving, growing church, fact is this is one of the things, two things, that kills a church, that will kill a church quicker than anything. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And these are two things that can destroy a loving church quicker. Nothing destroys unity faster than these two things. Where he says, just learn to live in harmony with one another. Don't malign each other. Don't gossip about each other. Don't criticize each other. And don't be too proud to associate with all types of people. In other words, he says, don't play favorites. Treat everybody with respect. Don't think you're too good for some people in church. Because we may be at all different levels economically, um, uh, educationally, uh, we may be at different levels age-wise. We may be at, at, at different levels spiritual maturity-wise. Some are new Christians. Some have been Christians for a long time. But what Paul is saying is, guess what? We're all the same in Christ. We're all one in Christ. And Paul is saying this. Paul is saying, respect those that don't play favorites and don't have favorites. James talked about this, right, in James chapter 2 where the snobby usher was at the back, and all of a sudden the rich man came with all the gold and the purple and all that other stuff. What'd they do with him? They put him down the front row. They wanted everybody to see who was in church. And then all of a sudden the homeless person came to church. And they put her in the back. They kind of kicked her to the curb. And James was saying, don't do that. God's blessing will never be on your church when you play favorites. And so he's saying, come to the place to where you just, you're accepting of everybody. Regardless where they are in life, regardless of the place that they are in life, you're just, separate. You're, just, you're just accepting because the ground is level at the cross. 
And then all of a sudden you see an interesting thing in, in this, this text that, that Paul is talking about how believers should treat believers and how believers relate to believers and how we relate to one another in the church. Verse 9, he says, be devoted to one another. And he's talking about Christians. Verse 16, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about show hospitality. He's still talking about Christians. Verse 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. So he's still talking about Christians. So he's talking about how we relate to believers. And then verse 17, you see this shift in the language in these verses. And, and all of a sudden, you start seeing everyone, no one. And you see a word like enemy in verse 20. And so now he's not just talking about how do we treat people in the family of God, how do we treat people in the church, but now he's talking about how do we treat everyone. Now how do we, how do we relate to those outside of the church? How do we relate to those that may not be Christians? How do we relate to those that, are, that we would consider an enemy or hurtful? And so he gives one B for that, and the B is this, be careful. Just be careful. Watch this, verse 17. Repay no one for evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. See, this, this goes against every one of our fleshly desires. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So here's just a real quick qualifier for this passage. We talk here a lot at Fellowship of the Rockies about context and understanding what's going on in the culture so that we understand the Scripture correctly. Now, the context of this, very important, Paul is talking about personal relationships. He is not talking about national relationships. He is talking personal relationships. He's talking about relationships one-on-one, -on -one, how I relate to you and how you relate to to me. So this is not a scripture that you get national policy from. It's not saying that the United States should fund every enemy, every terrorist organization that is trying to overthrow the government. It's not say, saying that we should roll over and play dead. It's not saying that we shouldn't defend ourselves when someone comes at us with a gun and those types of stuff. This is not what this verse is talking about. There are plenty of scriptures in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Romans chapter 13, Paul fleshes this out about government and all that other stuff. There's plenty of scriptures in the Old Testament. It talks about a just war and, the, and, and defending yourself and all of those other things. But what he's talking about here is personal relationships. He's talking about how do you and I relate to people or how do you relate to people that may not be believers at work? How do you relate to people in the community? How do you relate to your family? And so one of the things Paul says in this passage is what he's been saying all along is you, you gotta, you got to fight against your natural instincts. Our natural instincts is to strike back. Our natural instincts is to repay evil for evil. Uh, someone hurts us, we're going to hurt them and all of those other things. So Paul's saying, you've got you to gotta fight against that. I remember the story in a book that I was reading, a biography about the Korean War. And so these officers, American officers, rented a home in Korea. And uh, they were officers, and so it was common in that time in the war that they hired a houseboy. And they hired a houseboy to come in and do the cleaning and the cooking and all the servant and all that other stuff. And so uh, it was a young houseboy, and so these officers loved to play pranks on him and loved to play jokes on him. And so they would take and nail his sandals to the shore and short sheet his bed, and they'd take a bucket of water and put over a door so they walked in the room, open the door, the bucket of water would dump on his head, and he'd get sopping wet. 
And so they were having great fun with that, and they thought that was hilarious. And so, but this houseboy responded with such grace and humility. He laughed with them. He encouraged them. He, he talked with them. It didn't seem that he was angry or anything like that. And so because of his response, the officers got kind of embarrassed about their actions. So one morning they called the houseboy in. And they said, hey, listen, we've got to apologize for all this. And so you've really, the way you've handled this really made us feel bad. And so no more pranks. And so the houseboy looks at him and says, no more nails in, in, in sandals, no more nails in sandals. No more water over the door, no more water in the door. No more pranks, no more pranks. Houseboy looks at them and says, okay then, no more spit in soup. <laughs> and so, so the moral to that story, the story does have a moral. The moral to that story is it is possible to take silent revenge. Revenge doesn't have to be overt. And there are some people that excel in silent revenge. I'll just quietly make your life miserable. And I'll just let you know. Sometimes I've thought about this. Sometimes the, the secret to fighting against your natural inclinations or flesh is trying to put yourself in your enemy's shoes. Try to put yourself in their situation. And we've used this saying a lot here, but hurt people hurt. People in pain cause pain for other people. And a lot of times when someone's hurtful and when someone's obnoxious and someone's always criticizing, they're always slandering, they're always maligning, is because they got some deep hurt in their life. Listen, just personal testimony. This principle helped me greatly in my life with my dad. When a few years, many years ago, or a few years ago, when my dad started writing on it to document his childhood, and I read for the very first time what my dad went through as a child. Some things that had been done to him. And I realized he never had a father in the home and he never had an example of what it meant to be a, a dad and a loving dad. And he never had an example of what it meant to be a, a husband. And, and all of a sudden it began to shift for me. Like, wow, he's doing like the best he can. And there's people who have never had an example of what it means to be a dad and what it means to be a husband and what it means to be a wife and what it means to be a friend and... They've never had that. And what sometimes helps to shift in your life is to try to put yourself in, in their situation. Verse 17, Paul goes on and says, Just repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In other words, what is honorable do in the sight of all, which is even lost people? You realize there are some lost people that look into the lives of Christians and say, I'm not even a believer, but I know that's not helpful. I know that's not right. I don't know. I don't go to church. But I can't believe they behave that way. And so what he said, he give thought to your testimony, give thought to do what is in, that is honorable in sight of all. In other words, put yourself in their from their viewpoint, put yourself in their shoes. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, 
I don't know about you. I'm glad that phrase is there as far as it depends on you. Listen, he's saying you may not live at peace with everyone. He says so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I am so glad that phrase is there because there are some people, regardless of what you do, regardless of how many conversations and how many questions you answer and how many complaints of theirs you take care of and all that other stuff, regardless of what you do, it will never be good enough. Regardless of what you do, they will never let you live peaceably with them. But listen, I'm telling you. He says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, there's some Christians that they like that phrase because you'll, you'll heap burning coals on their head. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be nice to them, so God to give them blisters, right? I'm going to be nice to them so they have pain. And so, but what Paul was saying was this, leave all revenge up to God. So why does he say leave revenge up to God? I think a couple of things, just real quickly in closing, when he says leave all revenge up to God, I think there's two reasons why Paul said that. One is, I've learned this, maybe you've learned this, Scripture teaches this, revenge is the most worthless emotion you will ever have. Revenge is the most destructive emotion you and I can ever have. You know why? Because it's backward looking. It continually looks at the past, not the future. It looks at the past, something that you can't change, something that you can't go back and do over, none of that stuff. And so the problem with revenge is it is backward looking, and it will, it will suck the life. It will suck the life out of you. I'm telling you, with my family, this is so embarrassing, but it's just, it's just part of my testimony, part of who I am, that when I went through some deep hurt with my family, I took a legal pad, and I wrote everything down that they'd ever done to hurt me. Because when the day came that I get to confront them, I didn't want to forget a thing. And I'm telling you, that list destroyed me. That list looking for that day, because here's a day about revenge. Revenge is never enough. Revenge will always leave you wanting more. Revenge will never give you peace. Revenge is the most is the most worthless emotion that you will ever have. And there's so many people that cannot move on with the present because they're looking back at the past because of revenge, because of some boyfriend hurt them or some girlfriend betrayed them or some parent hurt them or some parent didn't treat them properly or some former spouse left them, had an affair on them or whatever, and they cannot move on. I'm telling you, it's a waste of time and it's a waste of energy. And that's why Paul said, the other thing he says, and so you, you leave revenge up to God, you leave room for God's wrath. And so the question is for us this morning, what does it mean when he says, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head? What does that phrase really mean? Well, there's two thoughts. One thought is this, that in their time they didn't have matches. And so when you wanted to borrow a fire, when your fire was out in your house and you needed a fire, you'd go to your next door neighbor's house and you'd say, hey, can I borrow some of your coals? And so they would take coals out of their fire, put it in a jar, and then the person would carry the jar on their head to their house. And so it was simply the picture of this, blessing those who hurt you, being good to those who have hurt you, being good to those and bless them. There's that thought. There's a second thought that John MacArthur and Chuck Swindoll have that means simply this, kind of like the houseboy illustration in the Korean War, that when, when you're nice to people that have betrayed you and hurt you, that they're so shocked that they're moved by your grace, 
by your love, by your forgiveness, that they feel bad. Verse 21 says this, do not become, do not be overcome by evil, but be overcome evil with good. Listen, let me tell you something. When I was in the revenge mode, and when I had my list, I was overcome by evil. It about destroyed me. And then when the day came that I didn't need that meeting with my family, and I could take that list and I could shred it and forgive them, I was overcome by good, and everything changed in my life. 